Oh my God, it's freezing. Okay, I'm uh, I'm in uh, the Northwest Territories here in Canada, and um, I've come up here to try and get the feeling of riding in the cold. <laughs> I can't do this. Because on this episode, we're going to talk with another person that rides in the snow. I just feel like I'm missing out. I gotta, I gotta get into this. Hi, this is Jeremy Craker. You're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. We got a good one for you today. We got Doris Wiedemann from Germany who's done all kinds of travel by motorcycle, but she's also another one of those people or another one of those riders that likes to ride in the snow. Kind of bizarre, isn't it? There has been a lot of them on this show lately. I don't get it. Doris is also going to give us some tips on picking up your motorcycle after you've dropped it. And who better to tell you than somebody who rides in the snow? This episode of Adventure Rider Radio is brought to you in part by Mototour. Mototour is the online community, the only online community, dedicated solely to bikers. And it's free to join, so you can't go wrong. Drop by Mototour, that's M-O-T-O-R-T-O-U-R-E-R.com, and sign up for free. And Audible, where you can get a free audiobook today, courtesy of Adventure Rider Radio, by visiting audibletrial.com forward slash ARR. That's audibletrial.com forward slash ARR. Now, it's a bit of a phenomenon, really, if you think about it, riding motorcycles in the winter, in the snow and the ice. And it's just not a place where you imagine that a two-wheeled beast, such as a motorcycle adventure or otherwise, is suitable. Yet, over and again, we hear of people who are riding their motorcycles through the winter. And they're not only doing it as some sort of gross survival tactic, they're doing it for the sheer joy of it, including Doris Wiedemann, who we're going to talk to today. It's the sheer joy of riding in winter, and you can hear it when she says this. This is not a torture test. She's not in pain. She's not suffering. She's not doing it to prove something or to cause herself to suffer through something and and come out the other side. She's doing it for enjoyment. Is there something wrong with these people for wanting to ride their bikes through winter? Or are you missing out on one of the best experiences of motorcycle riding? I'm Doris Wiedemann, I'm from Germany, and I'm a journalist and author, and I do motorcycle travels around the world. I did, and I will do. <laughs> and um, yeah, I'm, I also do presentations about my motorcycle trips. I did my driver license in 1985 when I was 18. The next year I bought my first motorcycle. And in 1990, I went to the United States, bought a Honda Shadow 700 over there and cruised around the United States for five months. Um, That got me hooked into motorcycling, traveling. So it took me another six years to buy a BMW, a GSR 100. And that bike I shipped to Australia in 1996. And I traveled in Australia for six months. Um, the next trip was pretty shortly after. In 97, 98, I crossed Africa, going from Germany down to Cape Town via the East Coast. 
And then um, I got an invitation to have coffee in Korea. So in 2001, I crossed Russia, went to North and South Korea, to Japan, and then I went all the way across Russia back home. And in 2005, I went a little bit further south, across Ukraine, Kazakhstan, and Mongolia into China. There I left the bike and I returned one year later. And um, yeah, I traveled a total of six months in China without having a guide. And then in um, 2009, I teamed up with a Dutch motorcyclist with uh, Jacques Lucassen, and we went up to Alaska in winter, which was uh, pretty cold. <laughs> the coldest trip I've ever made. <laughs> <laughs> well, Doris, I, I don't mean to interrupt at this point, but I mean, uh, the, uh, the Alaskan was pretty obvious talking to someone who comes from North America that it is cold in the wintertime when you're heading to Alaska. What on earth <laughs> would ever make you do something like that? <laughs> being nuts. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, you'd be surprised how common that little statement is that you just said when it comes to adventure motorcyclists. <laughs> well, I guess you're all uh, sort of some same kind, you know. <laughs> well, actually, uh, I did attend, uh, like in Germany, they have the elephant rally. That's uh, for, I think, 49 years now. They have a winter rally. And um, I've been there a couple of times. I went to other winter motorcycle meetings in Europe. And when I came across Russia on my way back from Korea and Japan, I was caught up by winter snow and ice as well. And at that time, I was not properly equipped to do that. But I really liked it <laughs> because <laughs> the scenery is just so different. And it's really interesting that also people react totally different, you know. When in summer, people would uh, not even, you know, see you being on a motorcycle in winter. It's like, hey, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> and you meet people you would never meet in summer. It still seems rather extreme, I think, to most people who will be listening to this to, to do this just for this different experience. But okay, Doris, we're going to go with you on this for a little bit. I, I'm curious as to how you make the bike fit into the winter scene. I mean, how do you control it to begin with as it goes down the road? Uh, we had uh, uh, spikes in the tires, which really helped. I mean, uh, if you go on these ice track races, you, you see that. You know, those the studs, they really help keeping your bike on, on the road. And then, uh, of course, we had what I think is the most important thing you have to have in winter is handlebar cuffs. They really protect your fingers from getting cold. And, um, yeah, like I, I was traveling on an F800 GS, a BMW, and I had from from Touratech the windshield that's a bit higher than the original one. And Touratech also offers an extension for that higher windshield. <laughs> and I also had that. And I had tank bags that would protect me a bit from, from the wind on my knees. And um, what else? <laughs> well, there were all these bits and pieces to to help you protect from the wind. That's the main thing, you know. We're all talking about wind chill in summer, <laughs> but wind chill in winter is something really different. <laughs> and if you're riding on the bike and it's uh, minus, let's say, 30, 
with the wind from the riding, it becomes minus 50. So if you can hide from the wind, you gain a lot. I think a photograph that I'm looking at right now says it all for you. There's a photograph of you and your riding partner there standing on a snow-covered road that doesn't look like it's been plowed since the last snowfall. You're standing uh, almost knee-deep in snow beside a Welcome to Alaska sign, and you're giving it away. <laughs> right. Well, uh, actually, that's on the side of the road. The road was only about 10 centimeters of fresh snow. And the fresh snow, the loose snow, that's a real trouble because... Uh, spikes don't give you any uh, traction in the in the loose snow but shark because he had that r1 he had special made winter tires and that worked very well so next time i would go not for the knobbly tires but for special winter tires if i go in winter it's so obvious you're a diehard because you say, well, no, that's the snow on the side of the road. There was only 10 centimeters or so on the road. Well, that's usually enough to stop motorcyclists, Doris. People stop at that point and call it quits. But you seem rather happy in this photo. Uh, well, you know, <laughs> I guess um, you have to have a certain kind of black humor to do some things like that. <laughs> Did you get into any of the snowmobile gear while you're riding in the winter? No. We had uh, heated visors on our helmets. Um, we had a heated clothes. Mm -hmm. But with the heated clothes, I'm really careful because, you know, if you have a breakdown on your bike, you're running out of uh, power and, and then you're freezing, you know. <laughs> and that doesn't really help you repairing your bike. So that heating stuff is only like a little luxury, you know. It's... It's the cream on the on the cake, but it's you have to survive with the clothes you're you're wearing, and not with the heated clothes. I think that gets really because cold is really dangerous. I mean, you're frozen to death really easily in that temperatures, and so I think you should really wear proper clothes. And and the coldest uh, days, I had seven layers of clothes. Wow. It took, us, it took us one hour in the morning to get dressed. <laughs> <laughs> but you bring up an excellent point there that we haven't spoke of before, is that dependency on having your motorcycle running, especially when you're getting into extreme conditions like this, or any for that matter. Uh, a lot of times people talk of putting on a heated vest and or just taking the heated vest with them for when it gets cold, if they're going through a mountain pass or whatever. But yeah, what if you do have a breakdown? I mean, you're going to have to, or it's wise, it's prudent to bring clothing with you that you're going to at least be able to add on afterwards once the heat has been shut off so you don't get stuck. That's an excellent point. Yeah, because um, I, I like the heated clothes because you can uh, adjust to the changing temperatures during daytime. You know, you start in early morning, it's still freezing, and then sun comes out and you don't have to get you know off the bike and take your pullover off, but you still should have enough clothes to not be freezing because I think... Yeah, I've been freezing on the bike, of course, and, and it's a real dangerous thing because you have to be, um, well, warm enough to react properly, especially your fingers. You know, I mean, you're breaking with your right hand and, and if you have frozen fingers, you can't break anymore. And that gets really scary then. 
It's kind of interesting because you and I are planning to talk today about <laughs> methods for picking up your motorcycle. There's no doubt you've got to be a professional <laughs> when you're riding your bike in the wintertime. So now when you're going to pick it up, the ground is slippery, you're freezing cold, uh, the bike is extremely heavy and laden with snow and ice, and well, we'll get to that eventually. But with this trip to Alaska, what, what was the culmination? What was the, the, the grand finale for you? Well, the grand finale was, on one hand, being up at the polar sea, at the frozen polar sea. We went up to Prudhoe Bay, and we, you know, the last bit is all owned by the oil company, and you can't go there. So we had to leave the bikes behind, but we got to the frozen sea. And to stand there and to imagine that underneath that ice, there is the salted um, seawater, you know, and that made me like, wow, how can this freeze? You know, I mean, salt water doesn't freeze that easily. And here's a whole ocean and it's all frozen and I'm there. <laughs> that was just magic. And uh, what was really, really magic was going through the whole landscape. We had a winter that had a lot of snow and and the sun and the snow, it was just, you know, you can't describe that. You have to see it. You have to do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not sure you're going to be convincing a lot of people. I think you have to have a, a propensity for extremes and, you know, cold, etc. Um, I see even another photo here of you eating an ice cream in the middle of winter on your trip here, which is another bizarre thing. We won't even go in, into that one, Doris. <laughs> but, but tell me you're not camping as you were doing this trip. Well, we we did only camp uh, down in the south. We started in Florida in Key West, and that was like you know going from the southernmost point in the continental USA to the northernmost point you can reach on official roads. So we started down in Florida, and there we went camping. But up in the north, when it was snow, we were happy to have little wooden huts, or we had uh, guest houses, or we had people who invited us in. And so we always had a roof on top of us, but we did carry a tent because just in case, you know, if you get in a snowstorm on the motorcycle, you have nothing to hide. You have to have a tent where you can, you know, go in and, and hide from the snowstorm and wait until it's over. Or if you have a breakdown, I mean, we were driving through pretty remote areas, uh, you know, you might be stuck overnight. So we carried a tent and sleeping bags to be safe uh, down to minus 40 degrees. How's your bike running in that temperature? It was surprising. We had special winter oil. Oh, yeah, you asked me about the snowmobile accessories. We had snowmobile engine oil in the bikes. And we put some, I don't know, it, it's some addition you add to the, to the petrol it's called heat, and and it's I, I only knew it from that you put something into the diesel to make it winter proof, but you can ha can have something for the petrol too, and we put that to the part, added that to the petrol, and then the bikes started well, but only because we had additional batteries with us. We had uh, lead batteries, and we took them inside, and then we. When we started in the morning, we took them outside, plugged them onto the bikes, and then started the bikes. How many batteries are you talking about? One for each bike? We had one for each bike, but normally one was 
enough for both bikes because they started fairly easy. And you're riding an F800, and your your partner that you're riding with was riding an R1? Yeah, right. Which That's had the it. advantage that, you know, he had he had it much easier to touch the ground with his feet. <laughs> <laughs> and I would add less less distance to fall. Right. <laughs> True. <laughs> Once you got up there and you stood in the frozen sea and you looked at that and took it all in, then you just sort of climb back on your bike and ride back down. And and might I add, for those who aren't really up on the geography here, to go from the from the tip of Florida up to Alaska, I mean, you're also crossing the, the continent at the same time as you're heading north here. So this is a, it's a monumental ride. Uh, yeah, it took us three months as a total. Um, but it was really nice. We met a lot of nice people on the way. And uh, and it was nice to, you know, also adjust our own bodies to the change of the temperature. So by the time we got up to Prudhoe, we were quite used to the cold already. You know, spending whole days outside, you just adjust to the cold. So when we were down, we went back down to, to Anchorage. Um, we didn't do the, the Dalton Highway on the way back because they, uh, again, predicted a snowstorm and we found a truck driver who would take us down to Anchorage. No, to Fairbanks, sorry. To Fairbanks. And then from Fairbanks, we went down to Anchorage on our bikes again. And being down in Anchorage, it was minus 10 degrees and I went out for a run. <laughs> and it was kind of nice, you know. <laughs> That's feeling balmy at that point. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I have to ask you for the, for the bike aficionados out there who get very excited about bike type and kind. And, and so one's an adventure bike and one is a sport bike. Which was better for riding through the winter in Alaska? Well, we didn't switch bikes, so I can't really, really tell you. One thing is for sure. I mean, the sport bike is very... Um, narrow handlebars so you don't have the lever for steering um but and of course the the sport bike has a lot of uh, uh, power and you really have to know your clutch to you know to not um, spin your real wheel but i mean shaq is a very experienced rider he's been around the world two times on sports bikes so he had no problems in the snow that was you know for him, I think it was rather easy compared to some muddy roads in Angola. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned that he, he had special tires for this. Were these tires that, that he had custom made? Yeah, yeah. There's some guy here in, in Germany who is recapturing uh, motorcycle tires, normally for, for um, sidecar drivers who drive their sidecars in winter. But yeah, he of course did it for Shaq too. I can imagine they'll be fairly expensive and hard to come by. Mm, it wasn't all that bad. I I don't really, really recall the amount of money, but it was cheaper than buying a new tire. Of course, he had to bring him the old one. A worn oh, down so they're tire. cutting it from an old carcass. That's what they're doing. Well, no, the well, they, they put it on an old carcass. Oh, they so it's a retread. Right, that's the word. Sorry. Yep. Oh, Sorry. right. That's the word. Oh, I was thinking they were taking a, a sort of a blank and, and cutting sipes manually um, no, by hand. No. But I see they're, they're doing a retread. Well, that's an interesting approach for it. Because then, yeah, you could, the, the world's your oyster. You can sort of pick what you want. 
Yeah, right. Uh, but of course, the, the handling of the R1 wasn't all that good with that tire, you know. I mean, he could go straight, but the curves were not that nicely anymore. <laughs> but I mean, that was not the, the, the goal on that trip anyway, so... <laughs> Oh, I mean, it goes to show, though, doesn't it? I mean, it's the it's the extremes of adventure riding, and there you are with a, a BMW F800 GS, which is, you know, supposedly one of the perfect bikes for doing this sort of thing, and then you're riding straight right along with someone riding an R1, which is the bike that is not supposed to be there. So it really doesn't matter what you have at that point, does it? Well, on one end, you know, as I say, it has its, its advantages and disadvantages. I mean, the... Uh, how do you call it? The balance point or? The center of gravity. Oh, the center of gravity is much lower than the one of the F800 GS. So it's, yeah, of course, it's it's easier to handle on snow and ice because you just put your legs down and you hold your bike steady. Whereas I could barely touch the, gro- touch the ground anyway. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> if, if the bike had a certain uh, angle... I couldn't hold it anymore. It was just too heavy, especially with all the luggage. I've never, ever been traveling with so much luggage as in this winter. And it's different whether you carry like uh, seven layers of clothes or whether you carry a T-shirt. <laughs> It's quite a trip. And the reason I, I like to talk about that when I hear someone's done a winter trip is everyone who rides a bike knows what it's like to be a little bit cold and uncomfortable. And then most of us have ridden in weather where, you know, it's getting pretty darn cold. Your fingers feel like they're stiff, like you can't move them. But middle of winter, that's just a whole new ball game Because like you said, the, the wind chills um, when you're moving any speed in the wintertime, I mean, you're down into very, very low temperatures. So it's the real extreme end of adventure riding. I guess the only thing that would be close to it as far as work goes is riding through some extremely muddy roads, but that's just for the work-wise. There's something about the cold that adds an element that sort of ups the ante, makes it far, far more difficult to do than anything else. I think it's um, mostly that you really have to be conscious about what you're doing, you know. You cannot risk making any mistakes, because mistakes in that cold temperatures, they can be deadly. They can be deadly very quickly, you know. Like people think, uh, yeah, of course, when I tell them I've been in Alaska in winter, everybody remembers his last time riding when he was cold. In fact, we weren't cold. If you are cold in such cold temperatures, you're frozen to death real quick and you won't get warm again. There is no way. I mean, we once stopped for making pictures and Chuck was taking pictures of me. And I mean, you cannot hold the camera with, a, with your gloves. So he had his hands without the gloves. And uh, he said, I should drive one more time. And he thought he could handle it one more time, you know, to take that picture. And I returned and he just gave me the camera and he said, I can't move my fingers anymore. And I had to pull on his gloves because he couldn't do it himself anymore. Hmm, That is so quick how you get from being cold to I cannot move anymore. So you really have to watch out to be properly dressed and, and to think ahead what you're doing like, you know, if you have to change batteries for the camera. So you really have to 
re pre-think what you're doing so you're quick enough to do it and then put on your gloves again because otherwise you won't get warm again. Doris, if you're telling someone about this and they think that it sounds like a great thing, what sort of advice do you give them? Is it something you'd say that just everybody can do? I think you have to have um, a good knowledge about what you're doing and a good knowledge about yourself, how you're going to react. You know, I mean, I teamed up with Shaq who, you know, went around the world on, on sports bikes two times. I did a fair bit of traveling we know ourselves pretty well and it's yeah it's really hard to tell in advance how somebody would react when it gets really scary you know so you have to know yourself pretty good and you have to think about what you're doing but then it's a great experience and i mean you don't have to start with the extremes you know like i say on my web page my first single trip was going around bavaria for one week <laughs> and then i worked my way up and i sure wouldn't have wouldn't have wanted to do the winter in alaska trip as my first trip that wouldn't have been good when you say know yourself, what you're really talking about is, is having been in stressful situations before, at least uh, in a lesser degree even, but somewhere where you've pushed yourself to the point where you have to be very resourceful or very resilient. That's what you're talking about when you're saying understand yourself or know yourself? Yeah, yeah. That you, that you know how to react when you get to your own borders. You know, that, and that you know your borders. That you know, okay, I'm going to stop here because that's all I can handle. I mean, that's, you know, what all these mountaineers tell you. Sometimes it takes much more courage to turn around instead of going up to the top of the hill. And I think that saves lives. If you know when to stop or how to react when you get to that, your own limits. And what about safety when it comes to riding? I mean, clearly a bike is not, certainly not a two-wheeled motorcycle, is not made for riding in snow, on snow-covered roads and in those conditions. I mean, as a matter of fact, all the bike controls, most of us know, are not just not designed for winter use. You don't have the boots over them that you would have if a vehicle was designed for winter use. So how do you handle the, the safety aspect of that? Well, as I said, we had studs, and that made it a big difference. And uh, I think you, sh you have to be able to, to handle a bike in general well, you know. I mean, if you have experience on gravel roads and sand or mud, you know how it is when your bike is slitting and sliding and, you know, <laughs> making trouble <laughs> underneath you and how to steady it and how to react with your body. I mean, that bike weights like at least, um, yeah, five times more than I do. So... <laughs> I really have to move my body so that I can control it. And and that's a matter of experience. You can't, you know, theoretically learn it. You have to do it. You really have to be comfortable sliding your bike before you're riding in, in snow. I mean, you've got to be comfortable with it sliding around and moving around. You've got to be the type that I, I think can stand up on your pegs, no problem. You, like you're saying, you, when you're saying familiar, you've got to be really familiar with all the aspects of your bike, not just, you know, used to riding it down the, the pavement on a warm summer day. Right, right. You really need to know how, how it is on the front and on, on the end and up and down. And yeah, you have to be a friend of your bike. Good friends know the, the 
the positive and the negative sides of each other. And that's the same with the bike. <laughs> you, know, you gotta know how it reacts. And what about other traffic while you're on the road? I mean, you're dealing with other vehicles who are probably moving faster than you and, and you know, you can create a bit of a traffic jam if you're not careful. What about dealing with that? That was really scary, especially uh, going up the Dalton Highway. There's in winter, there's about 100 or 200 trucks a day going up there. And these guys, um, well, they, they're really working hard and they have to push it to meet their time limits and to make some money. And, and they are risking a lot themselves driving their trucks on these ice roads. And now, you know, there's these two stupid motorcyclists who are riding there just for fun. And if I would have been one of these truckers, I would have been cursing wildly. You know? <laughs> but in fact, these guys were really, really nice to us. They were very helpful. And they tried to go around us as good as possible. And of course, when we're not, one of us saw that there's a truck coming from the front or from the back we had intercom and we told each other there's trucks coming and we tried to pull off the road or at least as much to the side of the road as possible and let them pass is there a point where you just get used to it where it just becomes you know that's what you're doing after you've ridden it for a week or so and you're the snow the slipperiness the traffic the whole bit the cold does it just become work a day in a way, yes, but it's still, it, it was always this, this magic of the countryside, you know, that snowy mountains, or then even more impressive, the, the snow-covered northern plains at, at the Dalton Highway. That's a, we were lucky, it was, sun was still out when we crossed the Brooks Range, and then we had that northern slope spreading out in front of us, and it was like, you know, it was a sea of diamonds. <laughs> and, wow. and it was an endless few, you know, it was an eternity of of eternity. And I cannot describe how how far you can see. It's just it's great. It's wonderful. And I still I, I get still moved just thinking about that few going down the Brooks Range and there's this great planes just stretching out to to i don't know nowhere <laughs> nowhere and everywhere you know <laughs> if there's uh, some sort of um you know when you switch between life and death i think that must be something like that <laughs> <laughs> i don't know it was just un undescribable and is that the, the height of your riding that you've done? Like, does that sort of stick in your mind as the best thing ever? No. <laughs> no? <laughs> There's no such thing. The best thing ever is the thing I'm doing right now. <laughs> the next trip, sort of, or the trip you're on. Right. <laughs> <laughs> or when I do a presentation about a trip, you know, from from the past, and in that moment I'm, on that trip again and then this is the best thing ever <laughs> and i mean you know every trip has had its magic i was i was 23 when i went to the united states and i bought that Honda shadow and i went around the country i mean of course that was totally different from what i'm doing now being 47 years old but with 23 it was it was magic you know i was without any 
other travel experience except being around Europe. And and here I was, you know, the little German girl with her school English, <laughs> no wonder <laughs> shadow, cruising around the United States. And in 1990, that was really something special, you know. People would look at me like, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> A woman on that motorcycle. <laughs> Traveling alone, yeah. Right. <laughs> How do you get invited for a coffee in Korea and end up in Korea? You sort of skimmed over that and that caught my ear. <laughs> well, there was, um, when I was in the United States, I was uh, at a motorcycle campground and the owner of the motorcycle campground, he gave me a, his BMW to do a test ride on it. It was an R100GS. And I really liked it. And then I finished my trip in the States. And, you know, that Honda Shadow was really a nice bike, but it wasn't worth carrying it back or shipping it back to Germany, you know. That was not, not it wasn't really my kind of bike with, with which I would do other trips. And, you know, so I had to sell it. And I felt like a slave trader selling his best friends after five <laughs> months of you know, <laughs> truthful uh, uh, service to me. <laughs> it served you so well, and now you're just going to give it away for cash. Right. <laughs> to the highest bit. <laughs> <laughs> That's even worse. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I decided I want to go on other trips, but I want to have one motorcycle to do it with. And I bought a BMW, and I bought it from somebody who worked for BMW. <laughs> and then I did my trip in Australia and in Africa. And after I returned from Africa, a German motorcycle magazine did like a, an article about me. And of course, there was a picture of the bike in that article. And a couple of weeks later, my telephone rang and the former owner of the bike, he called me and said, hey, that's my motorcycle in the new magazine. And I said, no, that's mine. <laughs> <laughs> and it turned out that he, by that time, worked for BMW in South Korea. And making a joke, he said, well, if you once time, you know, happen to be in Korea, then tell me, I'll invite you for a coffee. And I thought, wow, that's a, you know, getting free coffee. <laughs> that's a treat. <laughs> so I got my uh, my maps out and I uh, searched for a way how to get to South Korea. And there's, well, Russia was in the way, so I crossed Russia. <laughs> well, Doris, um, I have a coffee here in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> and and I'm going to throw in a muffin, okay? So that's a coffee and a muffin. When should I expect you? When should I put the kettle on? <laughs> well, we'll see, you know. Sometimes things happen and uh, you you don't know uh, before. <laughs> so let let yourself get surprised. <laughs> okay, well, you just let me know. Give me give me a few minutes warning. I could even put the kettle on after you get here. That's fine with me. <laughs> yeah, it's fine with me too. <laughs> In fact, I ended up not getting any coffee at his place anyways, but... <laughs> Boy, that's the worst. You ride all that way and you don't get the coffee? But because when I arrived in South Korea, he was for business in Germany. But when he returned, he got me on that uh, trip to North Korea on motorcycles. So that was okay. That was a good um, compensation for the 
lack of coffee. (laughs) (laughs) I'd still say yours, your coffee. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I said too. So when he moved uh, from South Korea to China, I said, okay, if you have a way to get me into China with my motorcycle, you still owe me a coffee. So, you know, you better find a way to get me in this country. And uh, yeah, he found a way. (laughs) I, I did visit him in China. That's just what I was going to ask about China. How does one ride around China with no guide? Um, It was, uh, let's say, uh, maybe only partly legal, I guess. (laughs) Uh, The bike was uh, got into China as an exhibition item for a motorcycle meeting. The guys at customs, they just cleared the bike customs. They didn't watch me driving off. And this was before the Olympic Games in China. So, well, the Chinese had the policy of being, you know, open to the world and and greeting the world in China for the Olympic Games. So the police didn't want to, or they, you know, they didn't really earn any credit for hassling with foreigners. And... uh, so when they stopped me and they saw I'm I'm a foreigner, they would just, you know, wave me to keep going, more or less, most of the times. They did control my passport twice, but then they again told me to keep going. The funny part is that I was also interviewed by several Chinese TV stations. So I was kind of famous in the whole country. And I'm sure that the system, you know, knew I was there. But obviously I behaved according to their rules. And so they let me stay. So it's timing, really. You you couldn't repeat that now. I mean, that was a, a special thing you probably got away with because of the Olympics. So you've got a, a rare view of things that uh, most people don't get. Because for those who don't know, to go into China now, from what I understand, everyone needs a guide. Right. Right. You, there is rumors that by now you can do a driver license as a tourist, but I think that's hard to get to. I haven't really done it and I haven't done a real research on it. But they say that you could do a driver license uh, with your tourist visa by now, which would mean you could rent a motorcycle in China and drive around. Well, how about the bike, though? Most uh, people in, in China are riding tiny little bikes, and you're riding this this uh, 800cc. I mean, it, it's a monster compared to what's there. Well, no. It, at that time, I had a, uh, for that trip, I had a F650. That was in 2005, 2006. There was no 800 at that time. So I had an, a 650 single cylinder because I, um, from what I planned, uh, to how to get into China, I wouldn't have had the chance to get the bike out of China again. So I would have had to sell it there. And I didn't want to sell my old companion with which I traveled, you know, Australia, Africa and Russia. So I got that F650 and I drove that to China. And well, BMW has a worldwide reputation. So two times it really happened that Chinese motorcyclists would sort of, you know, push me off the road, force me to stop 
just to have a look at a real BMW. I was like a pink elephant in the pedestrian area, you know, with that BMW. <laughs> and did you sell it there? No, in the end, I didn't get into the country the way I planned to get there. And because we, we thought you could, you know, sneak over the border. An American who's living in, in China, he thought he had, you know, the right connections to do that. But it turned out the connections weren't good enough. And then I got the bike into China as an exhibition item. And I cleared all the customs. I paid a deposit for it. And most white people I talked to said, well, the Chinese will just keep the deposit and nobody will care about the motorcycle anymore. And I thought, oh, it'd be nice, you know, to have a motorcycle in China. But in the end, uh, customs told me I have to get the bike out of China. Otherwise, they would accuse all the Chinese who helped me getting the bike in uh, to help me smuggling the bike. And I was out of the country, so I had no problems, but I didn't want to have my Chinese friends have problems. So I got the bike out of the country and uh, got it back to Germany. And by now, it's right now, it, the F650 is in Cameroon with uh, some friends of mine, and I will visit her next winter again. Is that your next trip? That's one of my next trips. <laughs> I'll go to the tourist trophy in June, uh, the Isle of Man. The motorcycle race, that historical motorcycle race. And I'm looking really forward to do that because I think that's a one in a lifetime you should see. <laughs> I've been to Sturges at their 50th anniversary and I've been to the biggest motorcycle rally in Russia at their 10th anniversary. And now I go to the tourist trophy on the Isle of Man. <laughs> What's well, Sturges? What, what was Sturges like? The Sturges in the old days. <laughs> <laughs> in 1990. Oh, was that a You went in 1990? Yeah. Yeah. It was the 50th anniversary in 1990. And um, it was great. <laughs> it was wonderful. I mean, that was the two things I wanted to see in the States. I wanted to see the Grand Canyon and Sturges. That's what I was, you know, setting out for. <laughs> and it was amazing. It was 24 hours, seven days, uh, the sound of Harley Davidson. You know, it's, it's just... I mean, I was at the second largest campground, and there was 10,000 people there. That's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of bikes. Yeah. <laughs> it was a real nice atmosphere, too. I met a lot of really friendly, nice people, and I had no problems with my Honda, and it was all good. <laughs> and and it didn't get wild and crazy? Well, it depends how you define wild and crazy. <laughs> well, what, what am I asking, Joris? You were obviously in on the wild and crazy. <laughs> you don't see the forest for the trees. I, I shouldn't even have went down this road with you. All right. <laughs> Anybody who rides through Alaska in the wintertime, what am I asking about Sturgis for? That's nothing. <laughs> this is in I your DNA, this that. stuff. <laughs> it was a great experience. Sturgis was really something, I have to say that. <laughs> I don't know how it is nowadays. I guess it changed a lot as the whole world just changed and went forward. But uh, I had a good time there. <laughs> we'll be back in a few minutes with more from Doris. She's going to talk about picking up your motorcycle after you've dropped it. Stay with us.
I want to talk to you about our partnership with Audible and the fact that you can get a free audiobook today, courtesy of Adventure Rider Radio, by visiting the special website they have set up for us. It's audibletrial.com forward slash ARR. And of course, the ARR is Adventure Rider Radio. Now, it's for new accounts. So you go and you set up a new account and you get your free book. There's no obligation. You don't have to worry about it. If you decide that you do not want to keep your account going, you have any time within those 30 days to cancel the account and you still keep that free audiobook. You can get almost any book you can imagine as an Audible book. And basically, it's just someone reading the book. Most times, it's not theatrical. It's just a a voice reading the book, much like listening to a podcast like this. So visit the website. Check it out. Sign up for it. If you decide you don't want it, it's no pressure. Cancel it. They will not bill your credit card. You've got 30 days before they actually bill your credit card for that monthly fee, which I, I think is $15 or $20 or something like that for the month. The point is, get your free audiobook. I'm convinced that once you get your audiobook and you start listening to it, you realize how cool the system is and how you can get a new book every month and you will stick with it. But if you decide not to, cancel it, cost you nothing. And that way, Adventure Rider Radio still gets the credit for sending you over to the site. So audibletrial.com forward slash ARR. And now we go back to Doris and talk about picking up your motorcycle after you dropped it. Well, and you've ridden through Africa and, and many other places. And in a lot of these places, you're riding over roads that are extremely poor and poorly maintained, muddy, slippery, and certainly in Alaska, slippery. So you've picked up your bike a lot. And recently, you've written an article, um, I believe for a magazine, about picking up your bike. And, and that's what we wanted to talk about today as well with you is your tips on picking up a bike. Now, the listener can, can really take solace in the fact that this is a person who's picked up her bike a lot. <laughs> well, you don't really flatter me assuming that I have to pick up my bike a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Since I know how to pick up a bike, I really try to not drop it <laughs> because it's hard work. Well, that, you know, that's, that's a great spot to start. So what are some tips that you have to stop the bike from going down to begin with? <laughs> well... Uh, on one hand, I think uh, a good idea is um, like doing riding courses or at least go on gravel roads because there you can really test how it feels when, you know, your front wheel is, is blocking or your rear wheel is blocking. You can just give it a try. You can play a little bit with your bike. And I think that helps you understand your motorcycle if you play with it. And uh, the other thing is... Um, I think if you push your bike, you also get a good feeling how it handles. So when I get a new bike or an unknown bike to me, and when I get to ride it, I always push it a little bit, you know, just a few meters, not far, but just a little bit forward, a little bit back and a little bit around the curve just to see how it handles. It's again about this, uh, what did you call it? The center of gravity. Yeah. Um, yeah, to, to get a feeling how that bike reacts, you know, and where that center is and how you can uh, work with your own body in in connection with the bike. And here we come to that point, you know, the, the advice of how to pick up a motorcycle, I think everybody has to find his or her own way because there are some people smaller than I am, some people that are taller than I am, and they have other other ways of handling that weight of the motorcycle. Some people have very strong arms, some people have very strong legs, and 
So you're, yeah, you have to find your own way. And that's the other thing I do when I get a motorcycle and I get to ride it for more than, you know, just an afternoon. Uh, I would look for somebody as a backup. And then I put the bike uh, somewhere where it's soft. Like, you know, I just go to a to grass, uh, yeah, some, some lawn or in my front uh, yard. <laughs> I, I put the bike down there because it gets no scratches and it's all safe. And then I start fiddling around. How can I get it up again? And there's, I have different ways of picking up the F650 and picking up the R100 chairs. They, they're two different bikes. Uh, the R100 is about the same weight, but it has the boxer engine. So it's not that flat on the ground. Uh, whereas the F650 is really flat on the ground, and, and I just grab other parts of the bike to pick it up again. But I think that's, I mean, of course, you can give some, you know, some ideas uh, how somebody could do it. But in the end, I think everybody has to figure it out himself or herself. I, of course, there's these different ways of, you know, if you face the bike or if you have the back to the bike. And I think the back to the bike is nice if you are on on a asphalt road, but uh, in that that muddy or sandy or whatever patches where I mostly drop my bike, I think to me it feels better to see what the bike's doing because that bike is not steady when I pick it up. It you know it's sliding and sliding as well. It normally has not such a good grip to the ground. And, and I like to, to see that, to react to it. Uh, so I still pick up my bike facing the bike and not turning my back to the bike. The method of it, though, when you're starting out, you're, you're going to reach down, you're going to grab it, you, we want to lift with our legs. Yeah, I, I go down and I, I look for the good way to, to grab the bike. And normally on the front, that's, that's the handlebars. And on the back, it depends. I mean, the F... Uh, 650, for example, on the R100, I just grabbed the frame underneath the, the seat. But with the F650, because it's laying lower down on the ground, you have two rods that go down to the passenger footbag. And I grab the lower one and I use the upper one as a like a handle to, to pull against. And then I pick up the bike from down there. And I Thinking about that, I last time I thought I might even try to to not grab the handlebar, but to to grab the crash bar and pick it up there because you're uh, closer to the heavy weight of the motorcycle. And then I, um, yeah, I push it up on my with my legs, and then I push my my body over the motorcycle. And it's basically I lean over the motorcycle, still keep my back straight and push the bike up with my body weight. That's the way I'm doing it. Now you're putting the bike in gear before you try and pick it up so it doesn't roll away? True. Um, most of the times I'm driving when I drop it, so it's already in gear. But yeah, if you if you are out of gear, you should put the gear in. Yeah. And what about when you're picking it up, and, and this is the the worst thing for all of us when we go down in, in mud or on a slippery surface, and you try and pick it up, and the bike is sliding away from you? 
it really depends on the situation. I mean, uh, I posted on Facebook last year that I dropped the F-650 on a mountain road in Cameroon. And uh, it was really unfortunate <laughs> the way it, it, it lay down there. And it took me three hours. In the end, I had turned the bike 180 degrees. I was driving uphill, but when I picked up the bike, I first had to go downhill to a not-so-steep part of the road, turn around, and then go uphill again. But I couldn't stop where I had unpacked the bike, so I had to keep on going until I got to a flat area again, and then I had to carry my luggage up there. So it really depends. I mean, I tried at that place, I tried with rocks, you know, putting underneath the rear wheel and things like that. I've already put some some sort of uh, rack and, and clothes or some plants underneath the rear wheels to yeah to get them traction when when you want to get out of a hole again so I don't know it really depends on the situation and what you have around you oh that's a very good tip putting things underneath the wheels to stop the bike from sliding away as you're uh, lifting it up Maybe the best advice for that is I was in Australia, I'm an Australian Aborigine, and he told me that if I have a problem, I should sit down and consider all the possibilities I have. And only when I've considered all, when I know about all the possibilities I have, then I should choose the best one and do it. Maybe that's a good advice, how to pick up a motorcycle. <laughs> well, you know, that, that is quite valid because sometimes when it happens, people's reaction is to immediately grab the bike and start heaving it back up. But it probably is very wise to sit there and think, okay, what am I into here? And how am I going to get this bike stood back up again? I've seen videos on the internet that people do where they're talking about how to pick up a bike. And the most common one, especially for touring bikes, is they flip the kickstand out and they pick the bike up with their back to the bike and they push it back up. And of course, this is on, on asphalt, so it's, it's fairly easy to do. And the bike flops over into the kickstand. But I, I seems like a lot of people miss is that it doesn't always fall on the right-hand <laughs> side. <laughs> I, it's a rare thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, so with that in mind, I mean, yeah, you, it's maybe one of those things you have to sit there and consider, what am I going to do? How am I going to get this thing um, up there? W what about pulling the luggage off and, you know, making the thing lighter? Yeah, that depends on, you know, if, if, if I can get it up without taking the luggage off, I, of course, do that, you know, <laughs> because you have to put the luggage on again. But, um, yeah, when the bike's really heavy and you, it's, it's in a very odd position, then I have to unpack the bike and then give it a try. I, in Africa, I once dropped the bike and I had already taken all the luggage off. And it was really hot <laughs> and there was no shade around there. I had a little umbrella to, to take a rest every now and then. <laughs> and then I thought, well, my next option is I can take off the tank. You know, the tank's a 42-liter tank. It was not really full full, but it was quite full. And that would have made a lot of difference. And the thought that I would have to take off that tank made me so strong that I lifted the bike. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I was sitting there with my nice little umbrella in the and 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 trying to figure out, okay, what's my next option? What can I do? So yeah, that's I think that's the best advice. And I think it's good if you know 
that you a can do it and b if it happens to be the best way how the bike falls that you know where to grab it you know that you already figured out okay that's a good handle that's a good lever i can grab it there and i can pick it up when you know your bike you know especially if you have a fairing or if you have the panniers on the bike it's not all that easy to find a, a, a spot where you can really hold on to the bike to pick it up. And it helps to know that before you drop the bike. Yeah, and I would add that if you're practicing this at home, which I think you have an, an excellent point there, take it on your lawn, put it over on its side and pick it up both sides, you know, and mess around with it. But also have it packed as if you're going on a trip and including the bags that you put on top of your panniers, etc. Because um, yeah, anyone who's done that knows that you go to reach and grab a hold of something and, and there can often be uh, very little, at least of good purchase to grab a hold um, at the back of the bike to, to heave it back up. But yeah. get out there. Put your bike over, practice with it, and uh, and see what works best for you. And I, I think the big thing is legs, isn't it, to pick it up? Yeah, yeah, definitely. You you really have to watch out that your back is straight all the time, and then you pu- you push it up with your legs. That's the only way to do it, I think. Well, maybe there's some people out there who have strong arms and do it with their arms, but uh, I think most of us <laughs> do it with their legs. Yeah. Yeah, bikes get pretty heavy. I mean, you know, so you, even for strong people there with, with good strong arms, it's still a, a bit of a job to pick it up. And as you said, it just depends because, you know, one time it can fall over and be a fairly easy pickup. And the next time uh, it can be quite difficult just if you put a v- bit of a slope on or, or slippery ground. So important to, to check it and at least get the, the feel of what it's like in ideal conditions on your lawn. And then consider the fact that that is going to be the easiest probably you'll ever pick it up is right there on your lawn. Yeah. Right. And I think that's, that's just a real good exercise too. You know, you you have to, yeah, you have to look at it as an exercise. And you don't want to be unpacking it every time because usually when you're in a situation like this, a lot of times you'll have more to go through. So you could drop it again in a very short distance. And if you're having to unpack and repack every time, um, it's just, it's not the easiest way of, of getting through it doesn't make you happy no <laughs> and the more you unpack and pack and drop the bike the more likely you will drop it soon again because you're losing your you know your physical strength yeah so that's a very good point the more you get exhausted the more you're dropping the bike and the more you have to pick it up again so keep that in mind too and have something handy to to eat you know some nuts some i don't know dry fruit or something that gives you back the energy after you picked up your bike. Doris, where does someone find out more about you? So my name, uh, com is the English version for it. And there's also a contact um, page, which you can fill in and then I'll try to answer whatever questions comes up. <laughs> Well, Doris, I know you have the, the four books on your website. Um, I believe they're all in German, though. Yeah, unfortunately, I've been traveling in English speaking countries, and I think I can, uh, well, understandably speak English, but I cannot write in English, not a whole book, nobody would want to read that. And I don't know any publishers on the American, Canadian, or whatever English speaking market. So... Uh, I guess I would need somebody who would uh, translate the books and then publish them. And I haven't found anybody yet. So if there is somebody out there, please contact me. I'd be happy to have books for my English speaking uh, friends on Facebook and wherever in the world. 
That's a great opportunity for somebody because there's four books. One's on traveling through China. The other one's the Alaska trip that we talked a little bit about there. 40,000 kilometers alone with a motorcycle from Munich across Russia to Korea and Japan. Another good one, motorcycle adventures around the globe. So we got four books here that really just need to be converted to English from my point of view anyway. <laughs> I'm biased, of course, <laughs> but, but to get in English because I want to read them <laughs> because, uh, you know, I see what you've done and I think I want to read this stuff. So yeah, if anybody's out there who can uh, help Doris with uh, changing these over to English, man, that'd be great. Uh, get a hold of Doris. Check our website. Of course, we'll put the link in our show notes as well. Yeah, that'd be nice to meet somebody who could do that. Well, Doris, thank you very much for coming on and talking with us today. And uh, we'll have to get you back here sometime. Well, I will be gladly return and pick up my coffee. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be waiting you. for you. <laughs> Thanks, Doris. Thank you for inviting me. I really enjoyed talking to you. I've been speaking with Doris Wiedemann from Germany, an adventure traveler and writer, if you speak German at this point. You can find out more about Doris by dropping by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com. And going to the show notes for this show, you'll find links in there to Doris's own website. This episode of Adventure Rider Radio is brought to you in part by Mototour. Mototour is the online community, the only online community dedicated solely to bikers. And it's free to join, so you can't go wrong. Drop by Mototour, that's M-O-T-O-R-T-O-U-R-E-R.com and sign up for free. And Audible, where you can get a free audiobook today, courtesy of Adventure Rider Radio, by visiting audibletrial.com forward slash ARR. That's audibletrial.com forward slash ARR. We got a new system now where you can call in and leave a voice message and we can actually take your voice message and use it on the show. So we're working on a few shows down the road right now, but we're posting on Facebook questions that we want to have answered or maybe that we want your input for. Drop by the Facebook page, look at what we're after, and then click on the button, send us your voicemail. You too could be on Adventure Rider Radio. And by the way, I'm on motortour.com. I've got my profile signed up and I've been slowly working away at filling it out. It's pretty cool. You got to check it out. And if you see me on there, don't forget to say hi. Hey, wait, before you go, if you haven't dropped by the website already to send us your comments, drop a donation, just basically make a connection with us. You got to do that now. Drop by our Facebook page. Tweet us on Twitter because we're on there as well. We're even somewhere on Google Plus, but I'm not quite sure where. You can generally find us by searching for Adventure Rider Radio. Go figure. You can also find us on YouTube, where we have our own YouTube channel, where we post these shows that you're listening to. So you can go to YouTube, subscribe, and listen along there. Adventure Rider Radio is brought to you by Canoe West Media. Special thanks to co-producer Elizabeth Martin. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio. My name is Jim Martin. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. Ride safe. This is Dave Barr, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. <laughs> <laughs>